Well, first-time events are often memorable and uh, very special. You remember firsts in your life? Maybe the birth of your first child. Maybe it was the first A you received in grade school. The first of things are memorable and momentous. First-time events in the life of a church are often very memorable and special. I remember vividly the first service of Heritage Baptist Church, September 9th, 2001, meeting in Woodbury School. I remember that almost like it was yesterday. It stuck in my head. I remember our first baptism as a church in a swimming pool in Salem. Those few gathered around that swimming pool to witness those people making public their profession of faith in Christ. I remember the first service in the Heritage Building across the way, the little building over there. And what I remember about that is we just finished this and moved in and we're out of room already. I remember the first service in this building just a few years ago. And what a great celebration that was. Well, we are upon another first as a congregation, and we have the privilege of sending from our midst our first missionary, uh, somebody who will be sent out under the authority of Heritage Baptist Church uh, to go forth and plant a church, as it were, in a foreign country. It's a momentous occasion. It's a unique privilege. It's a great responsibility. And although this is the first for us as a church, it certainly is not the first time this has ever happened in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ. But what I would like to do in order to help us as a church think correctly about this, I'd like us to review from the Scripture, why would we do this? One, why would a family deliberately decide to uproot themselves from a place of comfort even, as it were, travel halfway around the globe, plant themselves in an entirely foreign culture and language? Why would somebody do that? And why would a church promote that fund it to the best of our ability, and even encourage that in others. Why? Well, this Lord's Day and the next, Lord willing, I want to try to answer that question from the big picture of Scripture. In order to do that this morning, I want you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. We're actually going to spend this Sunday and next in this book. You might think if we were talking about missions, you might turn to the end of Matthew's gospel and this great commission to go. But I think before we ever give consideration to that, we need to understand something that precedes that. The book of Romans, let me just lay out the book for you simply. If you look at the first chapter... Paul, in his introduction, he's writing to people 
many of whom he knows, but the actual location where they're meeting in Rome, he has never been. So he's writing to people that uh, they're living in Rome. He intends to go there, he'll say, toward the end of this epistle. But as he introduces himself, just notice some things that he says. Look at verse 1. This is Paul, the apostle. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This good news from God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So it's not something new, it's old. God spoke of this before in the Old Testament is what he's saying. And this gospel, verse 3, centers on a person. It's concerning his son. God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. There's the incarnation. Verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's the gospel. It's Christ came in the flesh, descended from David, died, buried, rose again. And now notice verse 5. Paul says, through whom, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations. Paul says the gospel of God centers on a person through Jesus Christ, and here was what God was doing through that, according to verse 5. It was to bring about obedience of faith. That's a kind of strange way to state that. But what Paul will go on to argue in the rest of this book is the only way anyone can be righteous before God is through faith. And what God wants you to do is believe. And the moment you try to do anything you can to be righteous before God, you've failed. So all people must come to this kind of obedience. It's to believe in what God has already done. It's the obedience of faith. And notice why, look at verse 5 again, it's the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, for the sake of Christ and to the glory of God. This was the end of the gospel. And notice the who, look at the end of verse 5, among who? All the nations. This gospel that centers on Christ to bring people to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name is not simply a Western religion. It's intended for all the nations. This is how Paul begins this great epistle to the Romans. Now look at how he ends. Go to chapter 16. Paul closes this epistle with a doxology. It's a a praise to God. It's kind of like he comes to the end of all this great truth, and now he's worshiping God. And just notice what he says in verse 25. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, 
and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to who? All nations. Where did we see that? Back in chapter 1. This mystery, which is the gospel, it's, it's faith in Jesus Christ has been made known to all the nations. It's according to the command of the eternal God to bring about what? Obedience of, where did we see that? Back in chapter 1. And why all of this? Verse 27, to the only wise God be what? <coughs> Glory. We saw those same three elements in Paul's opening, and now he closes this, and he's saying, this is what God is doing among the nations. He wants to bring them to obedience of faith for the sake of his name or for his own glory. And sandwiched between that opening and that ending is a massive, wonderful explanation of how God is doing all of that. And really what you have in this book of Romans is this. It is God's plan for humanity. <clears throat> it's what he intends to do. And what he intends to do is primarily focused in this way. The end of Romans, verse 27, appropriately ends to the only wise God, his wisdom in doing this, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see as we look at a particular passage in Romans 15 this morning is what God is doing in a nutshell is bringing all the nations and all of humanity to their intended end, and that is that they would glorify him. So I'm going to state it this way. Humanity's highest good is to glorify God. And this is what Paul begins with in Romans, and this is what he ends with in Romans. And now he says, and here's how God does that. Now, I'm not going to preach to you the entire book of Romans this morning. Aren't you glad? Maybe you're not. That would be a great thing. But we're going to look at one passage, I think, that really kind of capsulizes it in kind of a succinct way. And we're going to spend our focus there this morning. In fact, I want you to look at that passage now. Look at the 15th chapter. <clears throat> and look with me at verse 8. Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. But you notice verse 9, Christ did something ultimately in order that Gentiles, that's all nations, might glorify God for his mercy. And it's just like God had spoken and Paul mentions all these Old Testament references. So this morning, I want to speak to you on God's mission. And God's mission is this, that humanity's highest good is to glorify God. How does God accomplish that? How are we enabled to do that? Well, let's pray and ask God to help us see this. Father, would you give us your mind and give us understanding into your truth this morning that we might know this and it really would drive us to live for your glory and that we would be engaged doing all we can to taking your glory to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Dr. Hugh Moorhead was a philosopher, a philosophy professor at Northeastern Illinois University. One time, Dr. Moorhead wrote to 250 of the world's best-known philosophers and asked each person, what is the meaning of life? It's a big question. He then published those responses in a book. Here are some of those responses. One well-known philosopher wrote back and said, really, I don't know what the meaning or purpose of life is, but it does look exactly as if something was meant by it. Another novelist actually said he had no answer to the meaning of life, and he said, and I no longer want to search for any. T.S. Eliot, who no doubt you've heard of, responded and said that Dr. Moorhead's question is one which spends one's whole life in finding the answer for, yet he himself was sorry he had not gotten to the point where he could sum it all up. In fact, a number of these intellectuals wrote back to Professor Moorhead and said, when you find that answer, could you let us know? Well, it was about 400 years ago, that was the year 1640, that 121 theologians and 30 laymen gathered in a room in England called the Jerusalem Chamber in a place in Westminster Abbey and over the period of six years, these men crafted what is commonly known as the Westminster Confession of Faith, the document that lays out the teaching of Christian Scripture. And what do you think was the first question they set their minds on to answer? First question was, what is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? And do you know the answer? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How did they come to that conclusion? Was that something that they made up because it sounded good? Well, part of their conclusion was based on what we just read in Romans chapter 15. 
the greatest good of mankind is to glorify God. That means the greatest problem of mankind is that people don't. In fact, that's how Romans opens in the first chapter. And it says that people suppress this truth about God, that God exists and he made everything there is and he is great. And it says that people hold that down and they exchange the glory of God for something that he created. And instead of giving God his proper place, they intend to look for their satisfaction or fulfillment or enjoyment somewhere else. And this is the greatest problem of humanity. Notice, though, that our text this morning says that Jesus did something to fix that. Look again at verse 8. Romans 15, 8, I tell you that Christ did something. Verse 9, ultimately, in order that the Gentiles might do something. Just as it was stated at the end of verse 9 earlier, and then he goes on and he lists all these Old Testament passages. So this morning, I just want to walk through verse 8, 9 through 13, and see exactly what Jesus did so that people would glorify God. What we're told in this passage, first of all, is this, that Christ came as a servant so that we human beings would glorify God. That's what he says in verse 8. Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Who are those? Those are referring to Jewish people, that nation that God had chosen to reveal himself to, that, that in the Old Testament he might reach the other nations through them, but they didn't follow God's good plan. But Jesus Christ, when he came, he became a servant to those people. Now, this was a contradiction. Because Paul speaks here of Christ, that word means Messiah, the anointed one. And it says that the Messiah or anointed one became a servant to people. For the Jewish people, that was a difficult concept. The Messiah, the anointed one, was a servant of Yahweh, the one true God, but he was not a servant of the people. He was a ruler of the people. Psalm 2, in fact, he would come and he would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And yet here we're told that this Messiah, this anointed one, would actually come to the Jewish people and he would be a servant to serve them. When did that happen? At what time is he referring? To which time is he referring? He's referring to the time of Jesus' incarnation. We're entering into the Christmas season, right? Try to forget all the presents and remember the greatest gift, that Christ became a servant. He took upon flesh that he might serve other people. And this is what Paul is referring to. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, Jesus himself said that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve people and give his life as a ransom for many. The apostle Peter struggled with this even when he spent time with Jesus. And in that last supper, Jesus rises and girds himself with a towel to wash the feet of the apostles. And what does Peter do? No, 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 you're not the servant. Let me wash your feet. 
And Jesus had to continually get this through their minds. Christ came as a servant. Why did he come as a servant? Look at the rest of the verse. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Christ came as a servant for confirmation, to confirm truthfulness that God had said to the patriarchs. What does that mean? Well, God gave many promises to that nation, the Jewish people, right? In fact, look at how Paul mentions this in chapter 9. Look at Romans chapter 9. Paul in verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who is he talking about? Jewish people. He was a Jew. Notice what he says of them in verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, right? They were, they were the children of God. The glory, the glory of the tabernacle and, and God's glory in that place and the covenants. What's a covenant? It's a promise. God made promises to those people. The giving of the law, it was given through Moses. The worship and the promises outside of those specific covenants, general promises God had given to these people. And what Paul says in chapter 15 and verse 8, that Christ became a servant in order to confirm God's faithfulness to all those promises. That just what God said he would do and had promised over the millennia, God did in Christ. In fact, Old Testament rabbis numbered 456 messianic passages in the Old Testament, many of them that were promissory in nature. God made promises based on what he would do through them. And so you have this whole period of Old Testament history where God is making promises and he's saying, I will do this. And when the Messiah comes, he will do this. And and this is what will happen. And then you have all this history and all of a sudden, there's silence. And you have 400 years of God saying nothing. And over that period of 400 years, if you lived in that time, what would you be tempted to think? Has God forgotten? Is God ever going to do this? Did I misunderstand this? And then Paul says, the Messiah became a servant to confirm all that truthfulness, to fulfill all that God had said. It would hinge on this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his son as a servant to demonstrate his faithfulness to all of those promises that he has made. And just a point of application for us this morning, do you realize that God is faithful to you in keeping his promises despite your unfaithfulness? That nation and its history was primarily marked by unfaithfulness. Alan mentioned this in the opening, their stiff neck 
And yet God had made unconditional promises to them. And to confirm the unconditional nature of that, he fulfilled them in Christ. And beloved, God makes promises to us and he will be faithful to you even when we aren't. Because that's his nature. And he's good. But I want you to note that God's faithfulness, the proven track record of his faithfulness in the sending of Christ is actually on the way to an ultimate thing. Go back to our text. Look at verse 8. Christ became a servant to the Jews. This is his incarnation. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to those people through the patriarchs. But ultimately, verse 9, this was the big picture. Yes, God worked with the Jewish people, and that was important. But the big picture is this, verse 9, that the who? Who here is a Gentile? Would you raise your hand? The majority, if you're not sure, if you're not Jewish, you're one of those, okay? Did you know that you're in Romans 15? Jesus did something among his people, the Jewish people, with this telescopic view that in the end, the big picture would be this. There would be a room of Gentiles in Wyndham, New Hampshire in 2023 glorifying God for his mercy. And that's exactly what's happened. This is the ultimate culmination of God's plan. This was in God's mind all along. That this is how this would operate, that people would come to faith in Christ and through a relationship with him, properly glorify God, know him in that way to give him his rightful place. Christ served so that we would glorify God. Now, let me ask you, what do you think is the ultimate reason that God saved you? Why did God save you? If you're saved, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you've come to faith in Him and placed your confidence in Him, why did God save you? You know, the Bible mentions a number of reasons. It talks about forgiveness. We needed forgiveness. It talks about relationship with Him. It even talks about our joy in that. But what is the ultimate purpose in that? Do you realize the ultimate purpose in saving you is God himself? God saved you for him. That's the real reason. That you might display something about him. And that you would glory in particular in this aspect of who he is. That he's merciful. Because I don't deserve the mercy of God. But I receive it in Christ. Because Christ became a servant to those Jewish people and fulfilled all the promises that he gave in order that I being a recipient of this magnanimous grace of God would would sing of it and would talk of it and would proclaim it. The ultimate purpose, really, of all things is God himself. 
Now, how does that strike you when I say that? That the ultimate purpose of anything is God himself. You would say, well, that's selfish, right? Does God need that? Is, is that why he says things like that? He, he does something so that he might receive all the benefit? Is this entirely self-serving? And all I would say to you is this, is there anything greater than God? Nothing. And to set your aspirations and your aim and your goal on anything else but him is futile for you, frustrating for you, and a loss for you. And God would be unkind if he didn't demand his own glory. Therefore, he says, I've saved you to glorify me and enjoy me forever. Now, beloved, do you realize that this is the great hope of missionary endeavor? Why would we send people halfway around the globe to teach people about God? It's not simply because they're lost. And we don't do it so that they'll have greater economic wealth. We don't do it to simply relieve some sort of medical condition. We don't do it simply because they have interpersonal relational problems and we know how to counsel them through those things. The reason we send people halfway around the globe is because there are people in Central Asia that don't glorify God. And therefore, we send representatives to tell them that Christ came and was a servant to the Jewish people and fulfilled all the promises of God that you might find forgiveness in him, that you too would glorify him. Because that's the end of all things. There's nothing greater. And that is a worthwhile effort. That demands our energy and our attention. But it's the perfectly right thing to do. This is our great hope in sending out missionaries. It's our great hope for ministry in southern New Hampshire and the greater Merrimack Valley that God would glorify himself among people, make himself known, that we would extend to them the grace of God in Christ that they too would glorify him for his mercy. See, the reality is, beloved, that no one glorifies God until they first of all come to the end of glorifying themselves. And that's our biggest problem. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And we glorify ourselves or we place all the glory in something else that we think is ultimately fulfilling. And God says, you're putting money in a bag full of holes. You need to focus on the greatest reality in all the world, and that's me. Christ came as a servant that we might be reconciled to God and thereby glorify him. This has been God's purpose from the beginning. This hasn't changed. This isn't plan B. How do we know that? Look at the end of verse 9. 
Paul says, "Add is as it is what? What does it say at the end of verse 9? As it is, I'm sorry, the middle of verse 9. As it is written. And what writings is he referring to? Well, if you'll notice, there are four different passages listed here. They're all from the Old Testament. But what's really interesting is this. Paul's a Hebrew scholar. He's a rabbi. And he's going to quote from all the three major sections of the Hebrew Old Testament, the prophets, the writings, and the law. And he, gives, he, he pulls quotes out from each of those things and says, see, God everywhere spoke of this in the Old Testament, that Gentiles ultimately would be gathered in and glorify God for his mercy. Let's look just in detail at the first of these. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> he says, as it is written, therefore... I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Where is this taken from? Well, God's plan has always been for us, Gentile people, to glorify Him. He first of all lists Psalm 1850. I want you to go there in your Bible. Look at Psalm 18. It's actually a quote from verse 49. It's a lengthy psalm, but just look at the last stanza beginning in verse 46. <clears throat> psalm 18:46 says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. This is a psalm of David, so David is speaking, right? He's saying, uh, God is my rock. He has saved me. He has delivered me. Look at verse 48. He delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above all those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. Verse 49. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. There's our quote in Romans 15. Notice who's speaking in the psalm. David is speaking in the psalm. So our question is, when did David do, ever do what verse 49 says? Praise the Lord among the nations and sing to his name. Did David ever do that? Well, look at verse 50. Great salvation he, that is God, brings to his king, the Davidic king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his who? offspring forever. Now we read that in our English, and offspring can be either singular or plural. But if you read it in Hebrew, it's singular. It's not talking about all of David's descendants. It's saying God, God delivered David and this offspring. What did he deliver them from? Back in verse 48, delivered me from my enemies. Exalted me above those who rose against me. What offspring is he referring to? The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3 when he speaks and he says in the Old Testament, God spoke of offspring singular and he says when he's speaking of that offspring, he's speaking of who? Christ, the most important offspring of David, Jesus himself. And what the psalmist is saying here, what David is saying is, me and my offspring have experienced this deliverance, and because of this deliverance, I will praise you among the nations. 
and I will sing to your name among the nations. I will point the nations to you and your deliverance. So it's not only David, but actually it's a reference to David's greater son, that Jesus would be proclaiming God among the nations. Well, how does that happen? Did Jesus proclaim God and his glory and his greatness and his forgiveness among the nations? Jesus' ministry was limited to the people of Israel. Well, what do you think about this? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. When did Christ confess among the heathen and sing praise? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 14. Paul writing to Ephesian believers, Gentiles primarily. And he's talking to them because there are some Jewish people in this Ephesian congregation and Gentiles. And he's telling them how God doesn't have different plans for these people. He's actually united them under one head, which is Christ. And just look at what he says in verse 14. Paul says, for he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. He did this, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, that's in Jesus, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now look at verse 17. And Jesus, he came and preached what? Peace to you who were far off, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's Jews. But it says Jesus came and preached peace to Gentiles. And Jews. When did that happen? We have no record of missionary service that our Lord engaged in when he was on earth. Here's the answer. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now notice verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal how? Through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says, here's the ministry God has given to us. It's like God is speaking through us imploring you to come to the Messiah. He's speaking to you how? 
through us, his messengers of reconciliation. Maybe you don't believe me. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul's recounting his ministry among the Thessalonian people, Gentile people. And when he went there and preached Christ to them, what happened? Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of who? Of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. He says, when we came and we preached this message of the gospel to you, you understood that it wasn't like just men were speaking to us. It was God appealing to us through this word. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. There's a context where Peter is speaking of spiritual gifts in the church. And he says, here's what goes on in the use of these spiritual gifts. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks what? Oracles from God. It's pronouncements from God. That when someone gets up and they preach what God has said in his word and explain that and speak to people and appeal to them, they are making God's pronouncement. God is speaking through those things. Jesus is preaching peace to people. When you open your mouth and you share the truth of the gospel with somebody, Jesus Christ is speaking through you. He is speaking through peace to those people that you're communicating the terms of the gospel to. And this is why Paul gathers Psalm 18 and verse 49 and says, God has always thought of it in these terms, that there would be a time when Jesus would come as a servant and he would enable people to glorify God by maintaining the truthfulness, all that God had promised. He would fulfill those things so that people and dwelt by the Spirit of Christ, would speak that truth about Christ. And those people, too, would glorify God for His mercy. Do you see that? This was always God's plan. Go back to Romans 15. I'll just mention these. He Quotes from the law in verse 10. Again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's from Deuteronomy 32, 43. Verse 11, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's from the 117th Psalm, the smallest psalm in the Psalter. Fairly more than two verses. Finally, he quotes from the prophets in Isaiah 11 and verses 9 and 10. According to verse 12, he says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. 
think of the nations. God always had in his mind the plan to expand to the nations, that all the nations would come and glorify him. Why? Because these Gentile nations are without hope outside of Christ. So Paul writes to these Gentile believers in the Roman capital, and he says, don't you know this? God had you in mind from eternity. He sent his son to be a servant, to die a servant's death on a cross. That you would glorify God for his mercy. That's the ultimate end of all things. That's why Paul ends this way in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would abound in this hope. There's hope for you in the gospel. Why would we send missionaries? Because humanity's highest good is to glorify God and there are people around the world who don't. There are people in your neighborhood who don't. There are people in your family who don't. But Christ came that they would. And you can open your mouth and share to them how Christ came as a servant to fulfill God's promises that they too would glorify God. Believers who understand this, and this really sinks into their heart, they engage in this plan. They start thinking of ways that they can spread God's glory. They start thinking of ways that they would sacrifice to do this. In fact, this was Paul's aim. Quickly, I'll be done. Look at verse 15 of Romans 15. Paul says, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, because I know that God is doing this, he's, he's talked about this, he's going to expand his glory to the Gentiles, that's why Jesus came, therefore I'm all in. I've given myself completely to this, that by some time I would stand before God and bring this offering, as it were, of the nations and say, see, I spoke of Christ to them. I did what I could to tell them about Christ, that they too would glorify you, and here they populate heaven with me. And When this sinks into a person's soul, they start to think and strategize, how can I do this? This is what I was made for. Look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. Not for me, it's for God. Verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Notice this. To bring the Gentiles to what? Remember that? Remember how he started? Obedience of faith. Remember how he ends? Obedience of faith. And he says, this is the bottom line. I am preaching to them the truth about Christ so they too will come to him by faith. That then they'll glorify God by his, for his mercy. Now friends, have you truly given yourself to this thought? 
When God saved you, he saved you for him. That you would glorify him. But that you wouldn't keep that to yourself. That you would actually go across the street and talk to that neighbor and establish a relationship so that they too would glorify him. That you would speak to them as if Christ speaking through you be reconciled to God. Do you realize that this is worth all of our efforts to spend money and time and prayer to send people around the globe to do this? Because your life is much bigger than just the 80 years that God gives you in this little time frame. It's something that God has planned from eternity past and will work itself out into eternity future. And it's like this huge stream that's flowing along. And all of your safety is to go with the flow and give yourself to expanding God's glory. It's like being on the Niagara River. You ever been to Niagara Falls? The Niagara River races toward those cataracts, and when the water goes over the edge, it falls nearly 200 feet below. You have the American Falls and the Horseshoe Falls. You look at those Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side. They're eight football fields long. It's massive. Now imagine yourself in a canoe upstream from those falls. You're 50 yards upstream, and all you have is one oar. Those falls are just pulling you toward themselves. And you're fighting as hard as you can against that. And imagine how frustrated you would be and how, how tired you would be and how your life is just all in jumbles. What the Bible says is that God has made everything for his glory. He has planned this from eternity past. It's all going somewhere in the future. Everything is headed that direction. But the more you fight against it, the more you lose. You need to give yourself to this grand ambition of the glory of God, making him big in every possible way. Now, that's why we send missionaries. That's why you go across the street to your neighbor. That's why you worship on the Lord's Day. That's why you prioritize those things. Because God's glory is 